0: On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Paul Michael Stefani, a.k.a. the weepy-voiced killer. In the 1980s, Paul confessed to killing three women. And why, you might ask, would he do that? Because he had less than a year to live. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Stefani is a killer that I've heard about and had a little nugget of info in the back of my brain about, but I never really thought too much about him. Then one day I'm listening to some different podcasts that I've never heard before, and I ran across one where one of the voices just irritated me to the point I couldn't listen anymore. And that made me think about voices, which made the little nugget in the back of my head pop to the front. Started taking a few notes digging a little, but I wasn't really, you know, full force into doing it yet. It couldn't have been just, you know, two days after that, that I was listening to an episode of Morbid, and they mentioned the Weepy Voice Killers as kind of a side note to something else, and that did it. I decided that was a sign to get a move on and do the case. So here we are. And hopefully, no one listening finds my voice so annoying that they will forever associate me with this piece of garbage. Let's dive in. Paul Michael Stefani grew up in Austin, Minnesota, where his stepdad, one of his stepdads, was a meatpacker. Paul is eventually going to be arrested for one assault and one murder. He ends up getting sentenced to 40 years. That's in 1983. The murder he's arrested for is actually the final in his spree, and the assault is the final, final attack. The reason he's caught is because that victim fought back and injured him. When he sought medical attention, they were able to connect him with the assault on his final victim. We'll get into the details later. However, it is not until 1997 that Paul owns up to the other murders. I'm going to just throw some things at you and then we'll go back and we'll kind of get the timeline from start to finish. Right now, we're going to go back to New Year's Eve of 1980. Karen Potak is beaten with a tire iron after leaving a party. She fortunately survives. But this is the beginning of a two-year series of murders and beatings in Minneapolis. And it was the first of the phone calls. At 3 a.m., the police get a phone call from a very emotional man. He tells police to hurry and get to the railroad tracks because there is a girl hurt there. Six months later, on June 3, 1981, he strikes again. But this victim isn't so lucky. 18-year-old Kimberly Compton was stabbed to death. She was stabbed 61 times with what they will later determine is an ice pick. This attack occurred south of St. Paul. After Compton was stabbed, a police received another phone call. This time, he said, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. A couple of days after that phone call, he called again and claimed to be sorry for killing Kimberly and also claimed that he would turn himself in. Of course, he didn't. Instead, he called again on June 6th to let them know that the reports in the newspaper were not accurate. On June 11th, he called in a barely audible voice, one that sounded like he was crying, and he said, I'm sorry for what I did to Compton. He wasn't all that sorry, it would seem, because he strikes again the very next month. The third victim was Kathleen Greening, who was 33. She was drowned in her own bathtub in July of 1982. There were no phone calls preceding Kathleen's murder. I'll add a little side note here too. At the time, no one would have connected that murder with the others, not only because of the phone call, but because this woman was drowned in her bathtub. We'll talk about that later. The fourth attack took place in Minneapolis. The victim was Barbara Simons, age 40. She was stabbed to death. Barbara was stabbed over 100 times. Then came the phone call. This time he said, quote, please don't talk. Listen, I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. And it's very weird that he said 40 times because if he was talking about Kimberly, that was 61 times. If he's talking about Simons, which it seems like he is, that was over 100. Pretty big discrepancy between 40, 61, and 100 Poor math skills aside, the fifth and final victim is 21-year-old Denise Williams. On August 21st, 1982, Denise accepts a ride with a man who then turns around and stabs her multiple times with a screwdriver. This woman, though, is not going down easy, and she fights back, and this will ultimately lead to him being arrested. Denise manages to get her hands on a soft drink bottle and, like, bashes him in the face with it. She survives... And you'll find out how and why later. And Paul slinks back home. Once he's back in his apartment, he realizes he is bleeding a lot. So he seeks medical help. And because of his injury and what they know about the attack on Denise and some other things, and she obviously telling them that she hit this guy with a bottle, it isn't that hard for the investigators to connect the two. There's more investigation. And eventually they will be able to connect him to the murder of Barbara Simons. Now, mind you, throughout the time that he is out wreaking havoc, the media is playing clips of the weepy-voiced killer. During the trial for Barbara Simon's murder, Stefani's ex-wife and another woman that lived with him, as well as his sister, all kind of say that that sounds like Paul. Authorities, however, don't think that their claim is enough, definitively, to try him for the other murders. The reason is because this voice is so distorted, and because he's crying, they, they don't think that they can prove absolutely that it is Paul. 20 years later, Paul will confess once he's dying and knows that he has less than a year to live. Very noble of him. After doing some reading and some researching, I found an episode of Mark, Mark excuse me, Mark of a Killer on Oxygen. This episode was called Killer Caller. So I watched that, went back to my notes, and this is why it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself because some of it was my research. Then I decided to just kind of encapsulate that episode, which starts at kind of the first body found and goes to the end. So here we go. So we have these three teenage boys playing in a field near a freeway construction site where there is not a lot of foot traffic. So they're just kind of hanging out playing ball and they run across a body. They call police and when the police arrive, they find this female victim face down. She had wounds to her chest and stomach area and along the inside of her thighs. It is obvious that this was a really vicious attack. They don't find much in the way of clues at the scene and just trying to find out who she is and how she got there isn't proving to be very easy. The body is taken to the medical examiner and at the autopsy, he is pretty sure that he knows what caused the wounds. He lets investigators know that this was an ice pick, which is a pretty unusual weapon. That gives police kind of the idea maybe we'll start looking into other crimes to see if anyone else... That's committed a crime that's been arrested might have used an ice pick they don't come up with anything there are also 61 wounds on this body which indicates a whole lot of rage and they don't have any id on the body but what they do find is a key inside of the clothes it appears to be a key to a locker they will eventually find out that this key goes to a locker at the bus depot they find the locker that the key fits Inside are two bags, and inside of those bags, they find books and ID. Their victim is Kimberly Compton. They reach out to her family and find out that she just moved to St. Paul that day that they found her body. She'd moved there to get a job straight out of high school. Now the police start looking at the timeline of this young girl's last movements. What happened to her? Once she got off that bus. It's two days after that that the phone rings at the police department. It is a confession of Kimberly's murder. And the fact that he says in the call that he used an ice pick makes the police know that they are talking to the killer and this isn't like some kind of prank call. They can't trace it, however, because he didn't stay on the phone long enough. Then they get a second call. This time, he is on the phone long enough to trace. And it traces back to a bus depot phone booth. I get the impression, though, not the phone booth at the bus depot where the locker was. So they hurry over there, question everyone, but they don't end up with anything usable, including fingerprints, because it is a phone booth. Some of you might be too young to even remember phone booths, but there's a lot of people that would use them. There were no cell phones, many fingerprints. So they decide they'll set up surveillance on the unlikely chance that the killer uses that phone again. But after days of watching the phone, they end up nowhere. Now they go back and start listening to the phone call recording to see if they can get something out of that. They go back and listen to other recorded phone calls just to see if there is any chance at all that they've heard from this caller before. It's when they do this that they realize they have a phone call from five months earlier with someone asking for help for a young girl. And that voice sounds an awful lot like the one claiming responsibility for killing Kimberly Compton. That's, that phone call for five months earlier is what led to a woman found nude in a snowbank. She had been beaten so severely that her brain was exposed. Buttons off of her blouse were found 50 feet away from her body. In her jeans, they find her ID, which identifies her as Karen Potek. Karen is a Native American woman who had been out at a bar with her friends on New Year's Eve. Apparently, she'd been in a bad mood and left shortly after midnight. Karen survives the attack, but has brain damage and memory loss, so she can't help police in identifying who attacked her. The only clue they have is the phone call. They send this recording to the University of Michigan to see if they can do vocal recognition, but yet again, they end up with nothing. It's at this point that they decide to release selected portions of the phone calls from the killer, hoping someone will recognize the voice. They set up a line asking for tips, convinced because the voice is so unique, surely someone knows who it is. They get about 150 calls saying who they think the voice belongs to, but nothing comes of any of it. And they get nowhere except the nickname by a newspaper of the weepy voiced killer. So two pretty unfruitful months later, after they released the voice, the police are called to the scene of a domestic dispute. When they get there, Alan Lopez is holding his parents and his sister hostage. While the police are there at the scene, they manage to get on the phone with Lopez and he confesses to them that he is the one that killed Kimberly Compton. So police kind of run up to the house and barrel through the front door. They are able to get Lopez into custody, but his parents and his sister are already dead. So now they've got him and even though he confessed to killing Kimberly, they need evidence They look into his background, and they really can't find anything that connects him. They go to the only thing they have, the voice. They want to see if that's his voice. But before they can do that, Lopez kills himself. Six months go by, no phone calls, no killings. They're thinking, maybe it really was Lopez. August of 1982, a paper boy is out doing his delivery, and he's doing this kind of alongside of the Mississippi River, where he finds some glasses, eyeglasses. A little bit further down, he sees what he thinks is a mannequin. He gets closer and touches it and realizes it's a body. Police are notified and they find this woman has been beaten and stabbed. There are circular wounds on the body that were either from a screwdriver or maybe an ice pick. The beating to the face is what convinces police that this killing also has a lot of rage involved. And as they're kind of reviewing crime scene photos later like the blood pooling and the drag marks they determine if this was just a crime of passion everything would have been like left alone he'd have had his little frenzied rage stabbing and then he would have run but this scene shows evidence of an attempt to cover it that makes police think that this killer has done it before a few days after they find the body they get a phone call it's a familiar voice It talks about stabbing this woman over 40 times and then mentions Kimberly Compton as his first victim. So now we are about a year and a half out from Potax attack. This also makes it pretty clear that Lopez was not the weepy-voiced killer. Back to square one. Now they go to the FBI for help with their serial killer. The profiler says the phone calls show that he's regressing due to an emotional state almost back to being like a teenager. But he's also trying to show who he is and at the same time taunting the police at this point they don't know who their victim is a postal worker finds a purse near the bus station where kimberly compton was attacked but the purse belongs to barbara simon she is a nurse who had gone to a bar in southeast minneapolis she is known in this neighborhood and she likes to go to this place called the hexagon bar which is like a little neighborhood hangout. And there's a bartender there by the name of Bill Hupp, who is also a friend of hers. He recalls seeing her speaking to a white male, and at one point she's overheard making the comment that she hopes this guy's okay because she needs a ride home. And this guy is like sitting at the corner of the bar, and for some reason he is making weird faces at the bartender, which is bizarre. Almost, Bill says, almost like the guy was sizing him up, for whatever reason. So the man was described as a white male, early 40s, rather muscular, six feet tall, and a mustache. Police now have a description of the guy and come up with the idea of who they might be looking for. They create this photo lineup out of mugshots of anyone that kind of matches the description. And then they have the people, the staff at the bar, go through those pictures. Bill Hopp knows immediately which one it is and identifies him. The man's name is Paul Michael Stefani. So now they have a name and a face. And his criminal history shows that he had an earlier assault for, or had an earlier assault, had a conviction for an earlier assault. So now they're going to start looking into his background. He has had brushes in the past with the law, can't seem to hold a job. He'd also been previously employed at the manufacturing company where Karen Potak had been attacked. Mr. Stefani is now suspect numero uno. So police start tracking and tailing him to see what he gets up to. They follow him one night in his car, but they lose him. A few hours later, police get a call from a person who says he saw a woman being stabbed with a screwdriver. This man tried to help, but the attacker turned on him. So the man ran and called the police. The suspect then got in his car and left. Police get there to find the victim has been stabbed 13 times. This is Denise Williams. She is a a sex worker, and the attacker had been a customer. He pulled over as he was taking her home. When he pulled over, reached into the glove box, pulled out a screwdriver, and began stabbing her. This is when she found an empty Coke bottle and smashed him in the face with it. Then he jumps out, starts stabbing her, And that is when the Good Samaritan tried to help her. While police, the ones back there at Paul's apartment that have been trying to keep an eye on him, see an ambulance arrive at the apartment building, police call dispatch to find out what's going on. And they discover that Paul has called for an ambulance. He claims he's been beaten up. Police aren't buying it. What they do is go get the mugshot of Paul along with some others. And then they go find Denise and show her the pictures to see if she recognizes any of them. And, of course, she immediately points out the person who attacked her. And it is Paul Stefani. Police take Paul to an interview room. At first, they're kind of just trying to sympathize with him for being a victim of robbery, even though they know he's not. Then it kind of turns and they start pushing him for a confession, like he attacked Denise. He claims continually that he is robbed. That he was robbed, that's how he was hurt. He didn't know anything about Denise getting attacked. The policeman that's interviewing him kind of gets up and starts digging through a file and he brings out pictures of the victims and he shows them to Paul. Paul starts like fluttering his eyelids like his brain is in overdrive. He jumps up and says, you are not going to pin those on me. But guess what? When Paul gets all emotional and upset, his voice goes up to a high, whiny pitch. The investigator says that in all of his years, he has never seen someone basically change personalities in front of him. Needless to say, Paul is arrested. So they have evidence for the attack on Denise, but not for Kimberly Compton or Karen Potak. So they have to go for the murder of Simons and the attack on Williams. You know, they have the witnesses at the bar that put him with Barbara Simons. And of course, Denise, who saw him, and identified him as their attacker. The other two, they just kind of have the voice for. They don't think that that is going to get them what they need, as in a conviction. They find out that in Stefani's background, there are some reasons that he might have confessed, or at least the phone call confessions. He was raised Catholic, so that might explain why he wanted to confess, to get absolution. I doubt God was too interested. but I don't want to speak for the Almighty. Apparently, Paul had a rough childhood with stepfathers, and at one point he had a Syrian girlfriend who was sent back to her home country because they had prearranged a marriage for her. This was not a good day for Paul. He was quite upset about that. So police think that when he was attacking his victims, he was lashing out at his former girlfriend, who he likely saw as someone that had betrayed him. So when we get to the trial, The prosecution wants to bring on this witness that is an expert in voice analysis. They want to show that Paul was the weepy-voiced killer. But that wasn't maybe as accepted back in the 80s as good science as it might be today. And the judge just threw it out. So they couldn't use the expert. And all they had left then was to rely on family. So this is when Paul's sister testified and broke down on the stand and said that she was sure that was her brother's voice. He ends up getting convicted for the murder of Barbara Simon and the attack on Denise, and he gets 40 years. But there is no justice yet for Compton or Potak. At a minimum, he's off the street, and that is some small victory. So now let's jump forward more than a decade. A guard at Oak Park Heights Prison calls police and says Paul wants to talk. And for a favor, he'll tell you all what you want to know. A couple of police officers are sent out to the prison to find out exactly what it is Paul wants. What's this favor? This is what he wants. He wants them to go to where his mother is buried and take a picture of her headstone. He says, if you give me that, I'll tell you everything. They obviously go do what he's asking. And when they show him the pictures, he keeps his word. Paul not only admits to the assault on Karen Potak and the murder of Kimberly Compton, he admits to one that the police did not suspect him of. That is his fourth murder, but he claims he cannot remember the name or address or anything super helpful for the police. All he could remember is that he drowned her in her bathtub. Police have to go to the coroner and ask, do you have any record of freshwater drownings that might potentially match this? What they come up with is Kathleen Greening, who'd been found in July of 1982, dead in her bathtub. Kathleen was a 33-year-old school teacher, and her cause of death, I mean, other than drowning, uh, it was undetermined. Her husband was kind of assumed to have had something to do with it, but nothing came of that suspicion. Obviously, because we know now it was Paul. The police, though, are listening to Paul, and he's got some details that only a killer would know things about her apartment, and he had put Kathleen's purse in a mailbox, one of those big public ones, similar to what he'd done with Barbara Simons. That information had never been released to the public. So police dig a little deeper, and they find that there is a Paul S. in Kathleen's address book. It is only two weeks after he drowned Kathleen that he murdered Barbara. And remember, way back at the beginning, He never called police about Kathleen's murder. So Paul gives an interview to Caroline Lowe, a journalist, and he tells her that there were voices that would tell him, Paul, it's time to kill. In this interview, he also talks about how he lured Compton away from a restaurant. And then he says something to the effect that, what makes you go from luring someone from a restaurant to stabbing them to death? Well, Paul, I guess we wouldn't know that because we're not psychopaths. After he killed Kimberly... He went to a Catholic church and sat in the back and cried. So Caroline asks him in this interview how he goes from doing what he did to all these years later admitting that he did it. That's when he says he's got terminal cancer and wants to apologize to the victims and their families. Paul says he isn't saying he doesn't deserve to go to hell. He even says if he were someone else and looking at what he's done, He'd say they deserve to go to hell. He finishes up by saying, it's up to God. I'll take whatever God gives him. Yes, Paul. Yes, you will. A year later, on July 12th, 1998, Paul dies at the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison in the infirmary. Some investigators don't really believe that he wanted to be caught, despite him saying so on the phone calls. They believe he probably would have kept on going had he not been caught. And here's a weird little thing that I found on Ranker. Caroline Lowe, that journalist who interviewed Paul, said she didn't wear red to the interview. That's weird, right? Here's the reason. All of his victims were wearing red when they were attacked. That is bizarre. Coincidence? Or some kind of trigger? Who knows? Before we wrap this up, it just, you have to hear the voice. You could find it yourself, but I'm going to subject you to it right now. Fire emergency. What is going on, just listen. I'm sorry, I killed, I killed. I stabbed her 40 times, Kimberly Compton, with a baseline over three. I don't know what's about me. I'm going to kill myself, I thinking. Where are you? And I really hope that voice is not now stuck in your head like it is in mine. That is it, my friends. That is the story of Paul Michael Stefani, the weepy-voiced killer. Hang tight for the final crumb. Follow me on Instagram at CrimeBiscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Like and subscribe. That would be fantastic. I will post a couple pictures on Instagram. Check it out if you want. Here's your final crumb. If you go out and murder several people and then think by confessing it, you're absolved, you're an idiot, and hopefully really super uncomfortable right now in hell. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.